So my research question and a bit background of what I'll be talking today will start my lecture today. And I believe that it's important to shape the question that I'll be asking and present the work that we're still doing. So I grew up in Bangladesh in late 90s, 1990s, and I saw the information and communication technology was, uh, has created an opportunity of millions of the people around the world uh, to bring changes to their life. At that point, at that time in Bangladesh, I was seeing a lot of computing devices, mobile phone, smartphone, laptops, Wi-Fi, internet, they all are intruding into the country and they're changing the social landscape. So I kept asking this question to me, whether these technologies are actually solving the problems that uh, we had before in our life, or are they adding new problems to our life and solving the problems that we never had and was introduced by these technologies themselves. With that in my mind, when I was an undergraduate student in the computer science department at uh, my university in Bangladesh, I formed a research group called Human Technology Interaction with uh, local students. With this group and uh, my other wonderful collaborators, uh, scattered all around the world. In the last 10 years, I have worked with many marginalized communities in Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan, including the ready-made garments workers of Bangladesh, the auto rickshaw drivers in India, evicted slum dwellers, and uh, mobile phone repairers, uh, just to mention a few. While working with them, I try to understand their problem using, um, uh, using theories and methodologies from social science and anthropology. I try to understand their culture, their politics, their economy, history, and society. And then I try to connect that for building technologies which are accessible, inclusive, robust, low-cost, and secure. So my method of understanding or doing research is a combination of ethnography and computing. So now let's uh, look at the, the theme of my research and the research question that I'm interested in. The center of my research interest is voice. And uh, what do I mean by voice and what is in voice that interests me the most? So today's world is a world of data. We get data everywhere. We have social media like Facebook and Twitter where we get a lot of data. We get data from text. We get data from radio, television, newspapers. So these are all platforms of voice. But how many times we thought that we do not actually hear from everyone in the world? For example, there are many low literate people in the world who do not read and write and we do not hear from them just because they do not have access to technology and people do not care uh, about talking, care to talk about them. Also, we do not hear from people who cannot talk because of social stigma and taboo. Think about the victims of sexual harassment. They do not talk not because they do not have access to the technology, but because they are, it's taboo to talk about sex on, on a public platform. We do not hear from the workers in ready-made garments industry in many places in the world because they fear of losing their job. We do not hear from many refugees and immigrants because they are not comfortable sharing their identity and their problems. So these people do not have the voice that we, we can you know, count on. They cannot express their problems. And since we do not know their problems, oftentimes we cannot address them, their problems and we cannot get the solution for those. 
So the objective of my research is to give these people voice. And by voice, I mean a comprehensive socio-technical process for them to obtain freedom. While working on this problem of voice, I ask these questions. How can technology be accessible to all? How to achieve social freedom over the technology? And how to make the infrastructure inclusive and sustainable? Or how can people make their voice hard? So these are the questions that sit at the heart of my research. And I explored them through various projects. So when I started this, uh, my journey toward understanding a voice and designing technologies for giving people voice, the first problem that I had in my mind was this problem of illiteracy. I, I knew that there are like one in every five people in the world who are illiterate and they cannot read and write so they didn't have access to this literate world of the digital technologies. So I thought I should be better designing technologies for low literate people to give them access. So I started working with a group of rickshaw drivers in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and I tried to understand their problems, their challenges in using mobile phone devices, which they had, they could buy, but they couldn't use because of the low literacy. So I designed a technology uh, which involves sophisticated matching algorithm on one side and then challenging hardware and software uh, optimization on the other hand. I, I ran this, uh, I, I did an experiment with this, uh, with this technology and deployed the system with this people there and I found success, many of them, they found this technology usable and they started using technologies, mobile phone technologies and uh, posting a stuff on social media. That made me happy. I thought now these people have their voice, but it didn't take long to understand that I wasn't completely right because there are also people at the same country who had access to technology yet they couldn't talk about their problems. And for that, the next project that I took on was a problem with sexual harassment. Like many other countries in the world, sexual harassment was, uh, was, a, was a big problem in Bangladesh. There are thousands of reports of sexual harassment which came to Bangladesh in every year. But the most staggering problem was that most incidents of the harassment go unreported because it was a taboo, it was a stigma to talk about sexual harassment in a public place in Bangladesh. So when I started digging deeper into this problem with my co-researchers, I found that these women who are victims of sexual harassment, they thought that they would need on the spot help, they needed to reach out their friends, and they felt better when they could share their experiences, but they couldn't get any of them because of the silence that they were facing. The, the silencing mechanism that the society had, it was never easy to talk about sexual harassment. So I designed and developed a system which allowed them to anonymously ask for help or share their experiences on social media to get help, to share their, to, to provide support to other people who are experiencing the same challenges. And this platform soon became very popular and soon we saw a lot of women started using these platforms. But then soon enough, we also saw this, there were debates. When even anonymously some women posted about sexual harassment, then there are other people who are telling them not to talk about this. For example, this is a screenshot of a Facebook conversation about a post that was made on Pratibadi, the harassment reporting site that we built, where a woman reported that 
she was catcalled because she was not covering her hate. And then there were people, both men and women, who told her that uh, it was justified for the person to say bad things to her because she was not covering her hate. So soon we saw that um, a lot of people were blaming the victims. And at some point, there were a reduction in the number of reports that we, were, we started getting. So I started, I, I started asking this question uh, to me, how technology is silencing people. So technology is not always giving people the voice. Sometimes it also silences people. And for that, we need to understand who is setting the standard in those technology and who is imposing the ethics and how is modern AI technologies advancing that ethics. So that kind of sets up the background for my today's talk. So for understanding this problem of ethics in AI, I started uh, to look at this conversation, the discourse that we were having in this part of the world. Uh, it's, it's true that people here have been talking about AI and ethics for a long time now. One of the things that uh, we have been reading a lot from the Western researchers who are interested in ethics is, uh, is, is the concern about privacy and surveillance. And we have, uh, we have come to know several, uh, several vulnerabilities uh, with using AI technologies that access personal data without consent. There has also been a concern for misuse of data or making business out of others' data and so on. And this book of Sushana Zuboff, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, was one of the eye-opening books which explains how private data has become a source of income for many commercial companies who are exploiting our, our, our personal data without our consent and how our privacy is at, at stake. AI and ethics researchers have also focused on different kinds of biases that are present in AI systems, including racial bias, gender bias, ageism, ableism, just to mention a few. And uh, excellent books like Race After Technology by Ruha Benzamin or Automating Inequality by, by Virginia Eubanks are just only a couple of examples of these eye-opening books which, which tell us how AI technologies or data-driven technologies often recreate and enhance the existing inequalities in our world. And this was not only limited within the uh, rich communities, how that also impact the, the communities who are poorer, who are historically marginalized, and how the historical biases are, are reproduced by ethics. Besides this, there are also other concerns with AI, for example, how AI can create unemployment, and there have been debates both for and against it. And I'm not just you know, like listing all the concerns of AI and ethics, I was just mentioning a few to, uh, to provide an understanding of the, of the huge, large, and growing discourse that we are having around AI and ethics in this Western part of the world. And if we look at the roots of this ethical concern that we see here in, 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 in here in the West, 
we see that there, we, we find secularism, we find democracy, we find nationalism, we find equity, we find neoliberalism. Well, so there, there, there has been a debate that this rooted in liberalism or neoliberalism. There, the globalization is also a factor there and definitely the free market economy which driving the capitalism and causing a lot of ethical concerns that the, that, that this, that the scholars are concerned about. However, the ethics in AI conversation has become predominantly centered on these Western values and Western ethics, which does not capture the ethical concerns which are situated in the other part of the world. And sometimes it's not that those are other sets of, uh, uh, of ethical concerns. Sometimes they contradict with the ethics that we have here in this part of the world. I give you an example. This is taken from a great paper uh, written by Christensen et al. published in 2019. These authors deployed a weather predicting system, weather prediction systems for the rural farmers in Bangladesh. And this is quoted from, uh, from, the, from their paper. They said, the village mosque lies at the center of the village life, metaphorically as well as physically. It is a spiritual, moral, and religious epicenter of village. Therefore, it was a blow to, uh, to the project that the local imam, after consideration, disallowed NGO staff's use of the mosque PS system as a means to broadcast messages. The local imam did not approve of the announcement of messages such as weather forecasts and associated agricultural advice stemming from the service in this mosque. The reason given by the imam was theological, only Allah knows. The field officer assigned from the local NGO to the village comes every five days or so and was hoping to announce some messages and forecasts to the villagers using the mosque. Select messages on, for example, extreme weather predictions such as doubt or flooding that may be considered important and even vital for the welfare of the village. And the NGO officer was hoping in the process to promote the service and the work of the NGO. A few messages were mic'd in the mosque to use the expression of the NGO officer before this practice was discontinued. So as we can see here, the, the prediction is, uh, which is often, uh, often seen as a sign of intelligence in, in, uh, in machine learning community and has never been questioned probably uh, without like the question of biases in this part of the world was not actually, you know, like taken as an ethical form of intelligence in rural Bangladesh and in many communities, in fact, in Islamic communities where they believe that only the God should know what will happen in future. And the act of predicting something which will happen in the future is basically uh, is, a, is challenging the God and is not supported by, by their faith. And this is not the only example. Uh, our field work with the, with the faith-based communities in Bangladesh shows uh, similar other examples. In our field work, for example, we found religious Muslim people were not using Facebook. We asked them why. One of them explained they do not like the AI algorithm of Facebook. We wanted to know more. He said, it is very unpredictable for him. He does not know what will come next to his newsfeed. What if he ends up seeing or reading something that he is not supposed to do? This uncertainty makes him avoid using Facebook or any other social media. And this, this kind of examples go on and on. And then it, we, we started asking this question, why is Western intelligence rejected 
in rural Bangladesh where people have different kinds of mindset in, in them, they have different idea of ethics and they have different idea of intelligence. And we also ask what are the basis of this local intelligence? And this is an ongoing project. And so far we have found faith, situatedness and hope are the three basis of intelligence there. As we are expanding our work, we, we hope to get further insight in each of them and maybe other basis of intelligence. And uh, this field work was, uh, was conducted with uh, Sharifa Sultana, who is a PhD student at Cornell University and a Facebook fellow. We conducted the results that I'll be presenting today was based on an ethnography in six villages in Jashar, Bangladesh for eight months. And uh, we started the local well-being practices, uh, started local witchcraft practices, uh, we started their local witches and witchcraft therapies. And uh, before I move to uh, describe the results, uh, the, the findings that we got from our studies, uh, I want to tell you that this paper, the results of this paper have already been published in three, uh, three recent publications. So if you are interested, you can, you can check them. So, um, so the, the communities that we started, they are predominantly Muslims, more than 80% of, of them are Muslims. 65% uh, of the local population was engaged in farming and the average family income was a 5,000 uh, Bangladeshi taka, which is approximately US dollar 59. And there were growing incidences of uh, landlessness, poverty, crimes, and migration in, in that part of the world. And what uh, the first finding that we, we got from our field is that faith is the basis of rationality there. And it's not like consequence. And I want to explain that uh, by our project on witchcraft. So the villagers shared their concerns regarding the limitation of medical practices for challenging spiritual situations. So the hospitals that we had uh, we in, in, in rural Jashore, those were not very popular with the villagers. They do not want to go there. They believe that the doctors or the counselors cured the physical and physiological problems on a surface level, but they fail to deal with their underlying causes. And for them, that underlying causes are the spiritual. And witches, on the other hand, are more trusted than educated professionals because they gain deeper understanding of the context using a spiritual lens, emphasizing prevention in addition to treatment. So almost all well-being practices are based on witchcraft beliefs there. These witchcraft beliefs are closely tied to their tradition, culture, and history. The villagers often prefer to go to the witches instead of medical doctors because medical treatment is surface level solution and not connected to their belief system. So for example, if someone comes to, uh, comes to the doctor because they have a, like a broken hand, the, the doctor cannot say why the hand is broken, but the witch can say, the witch probably will say that it was the, act of an evil spirit uh, which, uh, which broke their hand. And for the villagers, that is very important for them to know why that happened and how that is connected to their moral system. 
And we wanted to investigate this practice at a deeper level to understand how local intelligence grows and how the locally intelligent people like witches provide the service that the local people appreciate and how the traditional Western scientific medical practices are rejected in, in that part of the world. So I, I, I will walk you through uh, the, witch, the steps of witchcraft practices, not because I want to teach you how to do witchcraft, but you will get an understanding of uh, how, they, how the intelligence grows through this process. The so the first step of witchcraft is investigation. So the informal chatting is, is the way how they try to get the insight of the problem. So the informal chatting leads the witches to understand the breadth and depth of the internal social and family lives, economies, concerns, and tensions of their client. For example, which one was one of our participants, uh, and this was taken from one of the therapy uh, sessions that we, we, we observed. Uh, so she was telling the, her patient that I think your sister-in-law has taken it. So she was trying to solve a problem of theft of a, uh, of a, of a gold chain and she was making guesses. And she, she was saying that my understanding is that this loss will lead the suspicion to the elder bride. So that person had two brides and then deteriorate the relationship which will benefit the sister-in-law the most. The point here is that Look how the how the witch was going deeper and deeper into their relationship between husbands and wife, and how situated their intelligence is, and how they were trying to uh, find the solution of the problem, which is more like a detective than like a doctor. It's more intuitive than evidence based. And then when they, you know, uh, after their informal checking, they come up with an explanation and their narration of the incidents always involves some supernatural power. So this happened to you because there was a supernatural power which was making sure that justice happens and they're punishing you for doing this. And the prediction is drawn up on the investigations and this explanation. In the next state, they will perform something which would make people believe that they were connecting themselves to that supernatural power, which is in local language, they call it Keramuti. So the third stage of witchcraft therapy is locally known as Keramuti. It involves demonstration of various eye-catching performances. So for example, in the picture you see there are papers, red papers, and then there are these nails. And so they would, uh, they would put the nails inside the paper and then they burn it and then they would, uh, they would chant with it. So this, these were uh, the unusual practices and unusual performances that they would do to make, to tell people that these are the ways they are connected. They are connecting with this uh, supernatural powers. And then it, it, they, they move to the treatment part so in the treatment part, they are connecting their, their solution with traditional religions. If this, the patient comes from, uh, from, from Hindu religion, so they have a, a set of suggestions for them, which is different if the patient is coming from Muslim religion and they have solution for both of them. Here is also an example of how, um, how their solution is not, uh, uh, is, is, is respects every religion and is, uh, is curated differently for, for different, different patients. And, uh, and this craft and this treatment methods are adopted from the religious book of that particular religion, right? And finally, their prescription involves action. So definitely they would give you different kinds of tabij or jantra 
to cure uh, the problem, but they would also make sure that with that, uh, with that device with you, you also talk to some people, you also try to, you know, like uh, solve the problem in, a, in, a, in your social uh, atmosphere. So it's not like they try to solve this problem only uh, in your physical level, you sit at home and you get cured. They also try to make sure that you uh, you interact with your with your community, with your family, with your society, and get the solution from there. So that's why the morality of this intelligence is that they do have a moral resistance, they do have a moral balance, and they also call out immoral practices. Let me explain this. So what are this moral resistance that they create uh, when, they, when they do, when they practice this kind of witchcraft intelligence? So the witches are advocates of moral practices. So it's not only that they are solving your problem, you know, is, is it the problem of a, any problem that they take, they, they connect with this moral moral practices. For example, which for, which were, uh, which, which was another of our participant. She said that if you are not happy now that your husband is uh, hanging around the other wife, why did you hold the greed and married him off to that lady for money? You should have not. Now he has a child there. Do you think it is easy to get his mind back? So, he, so, the, so the basis of this intelligence is also tied to local morality. And uh, while practicing this intelligence, they are concerned about the morality of the community and so that the people who are suffering from physical or psychological pain, they stick to their, uh, their, their moral code of the community and they don't, you know, like, um, uh, they, they, they do not, they, there is no moral chaos in the, in, in, in the society. And then there is also a question of what we call like moral balance. If they find that someone broke some rule, they make them to sacrifice something to make it a balance. And that is the responsibility of the witches and the society to, to keep the community moral. And then finally, the immoral practices. And I, I, I believe that this is important to call out because um, when I present this, this findings. Oftentimes people ask me these questions. Well, then there might be like a moral relativity and you know, like a, they, we could allow anything and everything. Actually not, even in that community, there are witches who are, uh, who are called immoral witches. So they help people who this community identifies as bad people. So it's not our duty to, um, you know, as an outsider, to tell what is good and what is bad. They understand what is good and what is bad. And they also call out the witches who are not doing moral things. And here it's important to understand that the power, that the witchcraft practices are also connected with local, local power politics. Uh, so they are connected to the religious institutions. So where they provide the solutions, they, uh, they respect the local religions. They also work through the local government. Oftentimes they actually work with the local police for finding the, you know, solving the cases or they talk to the local government uh, representatives for, for, for finding the solution of a problem. So it's not like they do magic. They also do uh, take actions in the, in, the, in the real life to make changes. They actually work for people and they work according to the moral course of that community. And, uh, and while uh, practicing this, uh, this, uh, this witchcraft, this witches actually actively 
uh, actively help the marginalized communities in that in that in, in that society in the rural society they fight against patriarchy they fight against religious barriers uh, you know they also you know fight uh, for for profession fight against the professional adversaries and they also fight against the stigma and taboos so they have this moral responsibility and that comes with this uh, there's as, as a responsibility of uh, of uh, intelligence and now if we if you put this witchcraft intelligence by uh, uh, besides this or face to face as uh, western scientific rationality we see that this uh, witchcraft integrates body uh, integrates body with mind and mind with community the separation of body from morality is a western scientific idea and that is not practiced in witchcraft and witchcraft gives more priority on morality and communal harmony, less emphasis on individuals' physical and mental pain, which is separated from their moral values. And the intelligence in witchcraft grows within the local communal practice, and it is not separable from the context, neither can it be generalized, which is a contrast to the Western medical rationality, which often assumes that the same knowledge can be applied to everyone. So the modern medical science was rejected by the villagers if we reflect on the, our findings, despite its scientific rigor and ethical standpoint. The Western ethics are questioned because they cannot match local custom. And the fundamental ideas of individualism and mind-body separation are not acceptable to the villagers. So this, so before we move to the next topic, it is important for us to remember that how intelligence is based on faith here and not based on consequentialist or evidence-based scientific rationality that we practice in medical science or modern AI. The next point that I'll try to make is uh, how, the, how evidence in the rural intelligence is a story, not data. And uh, we will show how these two things are different and how the data or history in, is practiced in, 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 in modern scientific practices or AI practices is fundamentally different from how data is uh, or how evidence is, uh, is understood in rural communities in, in Bangladesh. So first look at some of these uh, common data visualization practices that we know uh, we see around us in modern days these are like presentation of numerical data in different forms. We all are familiar with pie chart, bar chart, pie chart, line graph, all these things. And they express different kinds of information related to our life. However, there are fundamental differences, differences how we uh, visualize data in, in modern scientific practices and how they are practiced in real life. For one example is the local art and craft practices like Nakshikatha. So those of you who are not familiar with Nakshikatha, it is a needle uh, art uh, by, by the local women, local rural villagers. And it's a practice that has been going there for thousands of years. And it is actually one of the cultural heritage of Bangladeshi women, like many other uh, uh, in, you know, like communities in the global South. And the themes and motives of this design are coming from mythological stories or from real stories or religious events. And the stitches, motifs, and ceiling of uh, the borders are religion specific. 
Similarly, the practice that another practice that we started was this religious idol making, the Hindu religions, the Hindu idol crafting. So the religious stories with gods as protagonists, how they how they project that story in their art is something that's very important for us to understand. And definitely the witchcraft practices, which also involves this visual representation of data, which has to be understood through your faith and spirituality, and which cannot be understood if you do not have that kind of a mindset. So now, the, what are the fundamental differences between understanding data in this way and the way we see in, in modern scientific visualization practices? First of all, the question of abstraction and concreteness and connotation. So oftentimes the modern scientific visualizations are, are abstract. And uh, this has also been reported uh, by many researchers before that we can look at any data and you can still convert them into graph or bar chart or pie chart or any way you want. And you think that the same meaning will be conveyed uh, if the data in, in the modern visualization. But for, for rural visualization, the material, the actual material actually contains the significance of the data and you cannot just convert that to another abstract form. So the rural traditional visuals, they're abstract, they're, they're, they, 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 they need the very concrete representation of what they are. If we are talking about mangoes, there, there, has, there has to be mangoes. We cannot replace that with a number or a, or a dot or a line in a, in, a, in a piece of paper. And multiple instantiations are the signifiers, which you know, like you cannot just, uh, just put another, you know, like a line and tell that, that there are, there are, there are more number of mangoes there that you are representing. And it is also important to understand the storyteller's uh, provenance here. In the rural traditional visuals, the integration of designer and the storyteller is very important. You cannot just look at somebody's, uh, somebody's art and make a meaning out of it if you do not know what they actually meant by this art. And uh, for example, like one of our participants in the, in the, in the village, uh, she was saying that my great grandmother mapped all the signatures. She was showing us this, uh, this Nakshikatha uh, art and telling that uh, my grandmother mapped all the significant events happened that year. My cousin was another one that was met by great grandmother's sister-in-law who lived in the same house. That one had a bull and circus on it everyone's ear is different and their choice of motives are also different. You might need to ask and verify what it is about. So that is challenging the generalizability of data of, of data and, uh, and evidence in, uh, in, in modern AI. And uh, which, which in, in the rural intelligence is very much, the evidence is very much is uh, situated and the data is created by some person and that person needs to make the, give the meaning of this data. And uh, for you to read the data, you also, uh, the reading also has to be situated. You cannot just read the, uh, read the data being anywhere. You cannot just read the, read the data being any person, which is probably possible in many modern visualization, which is independent of the real world context. But in the rural traditional visualizations, it's dependent on the physical location of the designer and the consumer. So you have to hold the art piece in a particular way, facing a particular direction, and 
standing at a particular point to understand the meaning of the uh, of the art or meaning of the visualization that is that is put there so understanding the data also requires a person to be physically present here to be aligned with the local custom and understanding and follow certain rules that is set by the uh, by the by the person who created the data and uh, before we move to our third point it's what the important thing that we want to take away from here is uh, the situatedness so the data and evidence which are deeply situated in the social setting of uh, uh, social embedding of uh, of the rural areas is uh, constitutes the intelligence uh, of of that of that uh, of of the it constitutes the rural intelligence it cannot be generalized it cannot be understood from a from a from a lens of an outsider and it has to involve the local people and that is a fundamental difference between how uh, the generalized version of AI or scientific artificial intelligence uh, is uh, it cannot work in in that part of the world. And finally, the the third point that I I will uh, highlight is uh, how probability the the way we work in machine learning or in many other branches of AI how we predict the stuff is uh, is different from how people uh, see. Uh, see the future uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a space or as a place of hope. So they focus more on luck, which is different from probability. Probability is a, is a statistical term. There's something that you can count, but luck is something that you cannot predict. And luck is something which is not also controlled probably by your history or probably by anything else. So for that part, luck, they, they associate that luck with their with their faith, with their custom, and that lack is actually connected with the with the hope that they associate with the future. And as we will we will show how modern scientific artificial intelligence fails to address the essence of lack in their life. So for that we started the the baking practices of these rural villagers in Jashore. As you can see here, a picture of uh, of some villagers watching a television in a rural tea stall. They're actually watching a cricket game, and uh, and these are the and, and they are also actually betting. They are involved in gambling. They are gambling on who will win the match. And this is actually only one example. The gambling is also like a part of a rural life in every sphere, as we found in in our study. So there are three kinds of uh, betting that we found in, a, in our field work. One is cogiting, which means the male villagers will gather at a tea stall like this while taking a break, followed by uh, matches on television and, uh, and workout. And the second one is Toronto, which means the bettors are invited by someone over the phone or a messenger and then they will bait on the messenger. They do not even know what they are waiting for, but they will bait on the uh, on, on the phone based on what uh, what the the person the baiter is actually telling them. And kare is uh, is mostly practiced by the female baiters who gathered in someone's yard in the afternoon when all their household works are done and they participate in baiting, which is often. Uh, based on some game that they play. So these are like three different kinds of breaking practices that we started there. And we tried to understand how they were using statistical probability and luck to, uh, to make their decisions. And what we found that 
oftentimes they do not make their decision based on uh, probability. Instead, they, they factor in different other things that in the, in the scientific rationality, we do not often uh, consider as, uh, as important. For example, the cultural values or the religious influence. So they trust each other over oral or textual agreements. And they have like stigma and superstitions that they uh, bring in. And often uh, the kind of like a nationalism also kicks in when they make this, uh, this betting decisions. Uh, so here, one of our participants was a 20 years old male uh, who is a motor mechanic in that village. He was saying that if Robi and Raju, two pseudonyms of two, two other villagers, ask us about our bears ideally, we should tell them the way we share information with others, but they're Kufa guys. Kufa means uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a negative term, which just means it's a, it's a jinx. Um, so they are Kufa guys, means they are jinx guys. Uh, whatever they do, they always lose their bears. So we will also lose it, uh, lose if they hold the same bet as ours. That is why we decided not to show them our bears. So as we can see, so this kind of fun under the, the, the stigma or this, uh, this kind of superstition about genes that is very much prevalent here. They are not looking at the statistical probability, but they are looking at their cultural belief while, uh, while making the decision. And sometimes they have some kind of alternative local calculation and prediction, which is different from how we predict the future. So sometimes there's a special details of the game, for example, player's hometown or birthday or death anniversary or someone or something that you know we do not find important, but they believe that those are important. Uh, so for example, uh, here they were talking about a Sri Lankan cricketer, Lasit Malinga, uh, uh, which is a uh, cricket player. And uh, this participant was saying that Malinga is retiring today. This is all over the news, but what does that mean? It means that Sri Lanka will try to win the match with their life. There is no way someone can win a, a bet against them today. So although, you know, like um, there, there is like a no reason that, you know, like uh, this person will, uh, the, since this person is retiring, the team will win, but they make kind of like a local calculation. The other examples of local calculation uh, was uh, once we saw that some person was saying that, well, I lost three bears in the, in the, in the last three days. So today I will win. I, it's, it cannot happen that I will, you know, like uh, lose four straight four days. So these are kind of like the local, uh, uh, local, uh, under, local understanding, local calculation of, uh, of uh, of of future uh, that they bring in uh, prediction, which is different from a statistical probability. And sometimes they want to take risk because risk is a symbol of courage, and courage is a good thing. And if they do good thing, then they can win. So they believe that they can actually increase the probability of being lucky. And uh, they believe that they can control their luck, which is different from how we understand future and probability. So um, here is an example where one of our male uh, participant was saying that sometimes a tea stall owner watches the bears on his phone and offers me to bait on the impossible sides. The day my feelings, uh, the day my feeling says I would win, I take that risk. I generally do not lose. For example, when New Zealand and Australia were playing, everyone said Australia would win. And the sides had the odds on their favors as well. They asked me to take New Zealand if I dare. I did, I won a lot that day. So you see, like they believe that, you know, like taking, 
taking, you know, they can control the lot. They can control what will happen in future by doing things, but um, uh, statistical probability often uh, do not allow them to have that kind of uh, feeling. And finally, the relationship, sometimes they believe that their, their decision should also follow their relationship. They follow their experts, even in the situation where the score and rates online did not match to what the experts say. So what these experts, these experts are not some uh, statistical expert. This might be their, some, their relatives. For example, one of our female participants said that his father, which means her husband, they do not call their husband by name, called by, you know, like a father of their children. So uh, she was saying his father was saying that India will win the match against New Zealand since India is a stronger team. Even though it is raining and some of the ladies are saying India may not win, I will stick with his father's insight. Men know more about men's game. I won't trust a woman's judgment on this. You should not as well. So you see where and how they make their decision, which is, and, and, and just to let you know that uh, all these women, they were also using some, you know, like, or connected to some software, which was, which was uh, providing them the statistical probability of who may win with which percentage, but they were not influenced by that number. They were more and more, you know, influenced by these issues, and they were they were making their decision based on that. So for them, intelligence is not something that you can actually calculate, but something which has to come from within you. They also connect this uh, the, their luck and you know future and prediction with uh, gods, how they should please the god and avoid curses, and that's how they uh, they win the betting. For example, uh, one of our participants said that. I have four SIM cards, four Bcash, and four betting accounts. All of those are blessed by the Mazar, except one. So Mazar is this religious place. Uh, I have to go there before the next tournament, beg for forgiveness for my sin as I bet without his blessings and halal religiously legitimate it. Otherwise, this one is not going to bring me any profit. So it's not uh, solely, you know, like uh, how you how you control the, yourself, you can control the, uh, your luck. There is a, this whole, whole faith and morality part is also involved here. So now this uh, brings us to the question of rationality, justification, and computing. So there are fundamental differences between the Western notion of rationality and the rural traditional rationality of Bangladesh. The good is often defined by a personal uh, individual benefit, but many methods to incorporate models for a collective benefit. Those models seldom involve uh, cultural uh, values that are hard to quantify and function poorly in global south where people are influenced by cultural and religious values and even lose their money for communal good and harmony. So now you see like two versions of intelligence. One is the rural intelligence which is coming from faith situated understanding of, uh, of incidences and hope and the other kind of Western modern scientific artificial intelligence is based on scientific rationality, generalizability and probability. So the question is what we should call intelligence in which context, right? So this brings us to this question of whose ethics. So modern scientific rationality is not universally uh, practiced and imposing this rationality 
upon other is uh, is actually an act of of colonization. So in that I, uh, I want to mention that this uh, related to that is this uh, story of this witchcraft practices. Uh, modern scientific approaches are not universally practiced and appreciated in today's world. While well, the majority of the uh, Western world appreciates the modern scientific understanding of health and well-being, for example, many other places in the world have different other perspectives. Traditional healing, witchcraft, sorcery, and occult practices are still prevalent in many practices in Asia, Africa, and in Latin America. Millions of people in those places depend on these faith-based practices for their health and well-being. For example, in South Africa, there are as many as 200,000 indigenous traditional healers who serve 60% of the population compared to 25,000 Western trained doctors. Uh, the Juan Camaba province of Peru is renowned for its ancient tradition of mystical healing and shamanism that serve more than a hundred people every day. So trying to introduce modern scientific medical practices in such places is often futile and culturally and ethically inappropriate. The adoption and use of modern healthcare through computing or not is often challenged, limited, or even blocked by various traditional beliefs. And this particular uh, issue is also connected to the colonial history of medical science. Across the history of colonization and cultural imperialism, traditional medical practices were ignored, sidelined, or suppressed, which contributed to the development, expansion, and proliferation of many European medical practices through scientific knowledge and later formed a hegemony in, medical, in, in medicine in the post-colonial world. With the burgeoning growth in computing in last two decades, mobile phones and other computing devices and artificial intelligence have now become available in many post-colonial sites around the world and many human computer interaction and global health researchers are taking this opportunity to extend the modern healthcare and well-being services to the rural and traditional communities in using computing devices. This brings back various post-colonial debates around modernity and tradition, efficiency and identity, and science and spirituality. Both this historical background and the practical challenges imply that artificial intelligence researchers uh, require a thorough conceptualization of and a deep engagement with traditional health and well-being practices that the discipline is uh, currently, uh, currently lacking of. So, and uh, we also need to understand then what, how can we think about uh, ethics, which is embedded in, uh, in, in the locality. Uh, so does it mean that uh, intelligence, artificial intelligence is not possible in, in, in traditional and rural communities. That is actually not true. And this is why we need to understand the, uh, the situatedness of, uh, uh, the situatedness of, uh, of, of ethics and situatedness of uh, intelligence. So uh, building a long-standing influential work by historian philosophers and social scientists, post-colonial computing criticizes the mismatch between the values that are embedded in technology by Western designers and local values and practices in the global South. 
such technologies do not only fail to capture the problem from the ground reality and hence fail to respond accordingly, but also produce a problematic power relationship with West that perpetuates through various aspects of post-colonial societies. One root cause of such power-laden transfer of values through, uh, through uh, technology can be found in modernist practice of universalizing knowledge, universalizing intelligence. Post-colonial literature has long been critical to such universalizing and exercising politics through and over them. This problematic practice is often evident in medicine, agriculture, uh, architecture, and technology that is embedded in competing practices in those disciplines that the scholars of post-colonial computing have already revealed. So our ongoing work shows how the rural Bangladeshi communities have a long and rich traditions of uh, storing and communicating uh, information that is strongly connected to the local art, local culture, local people, history, materials, and environment. We thus show how the local practices are fundamentally different from modern scientific practices that risk alienating data from material, designer, and context. So and it also opens up this opportunity for, uh, for uh, for a new kind of intelligence, which will stem out of this uh, local understanding of a phenomena, which is aligned with the local moral practices. We argue that having uh, more knowledge about people's lives, communities, values, practices, religion, and spirituality through long-term ethnographic engagement and participatory studies will lead to more effective information communication uh, technologies for a similar marginalized population around the world. And finally, uh, we want to connect uh, uh, hope with intelligence, an important thing that is often missed here. Oftentimes, uh, hope is, uh, is uh, intelligence is, uh, is considered something which is devoid of hope. Intelligence is something which is, uh, uh, which is neutral, which is apolitical, which is, um, which is based on history and data and evidence which divides of uh, any kind of, uh, of understanding of, uh, of hope that you cannot ration with the, uh, with the, with the history or evidence. Uh, but this, uh, this nascent body of our work has been criticizing the transfer of these West, West-born ideas to the global South, which is killing the hope of local people, right? And, uh, and, uh, and, and we highlight the value mismatches there uh, and how, uh, how devastating and damaging their consequences are. We extend this line of work um, by focusing on the difference between the ideas of probability and luck in betting. The traditional concept of luck is different from probability as we, we discussed before, as defined in the literature of data science and data-driven decision-making. So the probability, the map that we do there in artificial intelligence cannot, cannot you know, like control your luck. But this lack is important, but by deploying this artificial intelligence technology, we cannot kill the hope around luck that these people have, which they associate with their local culture and faith. While there is a trend in AI machine learning and other smart technologies, uh, technology uh, to quantify and predict the future for many people, uh, but for many people who are living in the traditional societies in the global South, future largely depends on their luck. Instead of counting the past to predict the future, people believe that their future is controlled by a supernatural power. Religious or para-religious beliefs are, are prevalent there. 
Hence, for increasing their chance to win the luck, instead of following the data-driven suggestions, they focus more on pleasing their gods, often through sacrifices, or being more moral in their society. This divide in understanding the future points out the gap in human AI scholarship to design for the faith-based communities, especially in the global south. We call for a deeper integration of local ethics and AI system uh, instead of a global secular ubiquitous ethics for uh, recommendation. This can be approached by designing more technologies for faith-based communities and make the interfaith communications. So finally, um, the takeaways are, we argue that to voice communities um, uh, in non-Western societies, the current model of AI is not sufficient. The discussion of ethics in AI should not only be centered on the Western notion of ethics. We should get rid of a universal and generalized form of intelligence. And uh, the localized and situated ethical practices should consider local faith-based practices, local stories, and local hope. And once again, uh, the, those who are interested can read our papers, which have been published in, uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, with that, I am happy to take any question and feedback. Thank you.